Well, here we are again. Our church is online, and you're sitting at home, and we are settling into the new normal. And, uh, and this is a unique season. We've said it again and again and again. I heard, I heard a leader say recently, he said that when life is normal or ordinary, you long for the extraordinary, right? Uh, many of your calendars, uh, when life was no- ordinary, was planning out things that were going to be extraordinary. There was a vacation, there was an anniversary trip, there was a big event, there was a graduation, there was a lot of exciting things. But now that life is abnormal, all we long for is the ordinary. You're like, can I give somebody a hug? Can I give somebody a handshake? Can somebody come into my house? You know, can we gather together as a church? Can I, uh, you know, go to my favorite restaurant? You know, all of those things are not happening and we long for them. And and let me just tell you what we're doing in this season. We're, We're asking several questions as a church. The first question we're asking is, how do we best do discipleship in a digital time right now? Like digital discipleship. And so we continue to work on what's the best way for us to get our services online, to expand them, to enhance them, to make the weekend the best weekend we can to gather electronically as a church. The second question we're asking is, how do we best train and teach and equip the committed, the connected, the core of our church? We're working on that. Uh, I launched a series two weeks ago on Nehemiah, where we're looking at leadership principles in his life. He's a godly man. He's a great leader. So I passed that along. We're going to be giving you guys more resources. And then thirdly, we're asking, how do we activate the scattered church? Uh, now, we, we always saying, hey, look, where you live, learn, work, play, those used to be four different places. <laughs> That's all now one place, right? You're like, well, I live in the same place that I learn, that I work, that I play. I do everything in my apartment or I do everything in my house. Well, what we want to do is we want to help you to uh, be a faithful Christian where you are right now. And, and so there's three things that we're thinking through. And we're going to try to equip, uh, equip you in in the coming weeks and months. The first is just how do we be people of prayer, right? Prayer is the, um, it's the place of intimacy with God. It's the place of empowerment. It's the place of wisdom. It's the place of direction. And we continue to say this and really mean this. We want prayer to be our first response, not our last resort. So that's the first thing. The second thing is presence, okay? What is it going to look like for moving from the back deck to the front porch, Maybe being more in your front yard, maybe you're on more walks, maybe you're more available to your neighbors, maybe you do a Zoom call, who knows, you're doing something to try to be around people, social distancing, of course, in this season, uh, but, but, but so that you can't, right, there's, we used to say when I was in college ministry, there's no impact without uh, proper contact, right, we've got to be around people. And then the third thing is proclamation, right, how do we bring the good news of Jesus in a world that's full of bad news? And it's going to take conversation. And let me just encourage you this, that conversations with your family and your friends or your neighbors, uh, they will never, most likely, they're never going to go from casual to Christian. Uh, Casual conversations to we're talking about Christ. Um, They tend to go through one more avenue. It's usually casual and then meaningful, right? I don't know, you're talking to your neighbor and something comes up about their son or their daughter or their fears. And all of a sudden you find we're no longer talking about the news and the weather and the sports, Uh, We're talking, we've moved from casual to meaningful, and the avenue from meaningful to spiritual is often an easier, more natural, more accessible avenue. And so that's our hope, that's our prayer, that's our plan, that's our desire, that what we want to do is we want to be people of prayer, people who have a gospel presence, and people who are committing to proclaiming the gospel in this season to our neighbors, to our families, and to our friends. Let's pray for that, and then we're going to dive into the book of Galatians. Pray with me. Lord, that is our our prayer. We ask in Jesus' name you'd help us to be men and women of prayer who seek your face and seek your heart before we seek your hand. Lord, I pray that we'd be people of, of presence, 
that we would, we would want to be around each other as much as possible, even if it's the presence of being on Zoom together with our neighbors or with our, with our friends and family. Lord, and then I pray for proclamation. We have a unique opportunity to share good news in a world where almost everything everybody's always hearing is bad news. Help us to have not just casual, but meaningful and spiritual conversations in this season. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let me ask you this. What type of family did you grow up in, right? When you think back to, I don't know, your, your childhood or being a kid, what was your family like? Uh, there's multiple types of family. Let me just give you a few of them. Uh, there's the tragic family. And, and, you know, if this is you, I'm sorry. The tragic family is the family where something so terrible and so tragic um, happened, often maybe when, they were, when the child was young or, the, or you were young, and, and, it, and it affected you greatly for the rest of your life. Like, I've got a friend in high school. His dad died when he was in elementary school. And that really uh, determined in many ways what his life was going to look like for the next decade or two of his life. Some of you grew up in a tragic home. Others of you grew up in a terrible home. And I'm sorry and we're sorry, right? And you don't even like to talk about your past. It was full of abuse or maybe there was abandonment or who knows what happened. Now, often if you're from a, a terrible home, you're afraid of commitment, right? You're like, I don't want to get married. I don't want to have kids. Or if I do, uh, it'll be the exact opposite of how I was raised, and then there are others of you who you grew up in a tolerable home. That's probably most people. It's like, you know, it's a mixed bag, like all things in life is. It's like, well, there was some good and there was some bad. And, you know, there were good seasons and there were bad seasons. There were ups and there were downs. And you've got good memories and you've got bad memories. And sometimes dad was great and sometimes dad wasn't. Mom and dad had rough patches and, you know, all of that. And then some of you, maybe many of you, I, I don't know, many of you, some of you at least, you grew up in a terrific home. It's like, wow, there was food on the table and a Bible in my hand and, and mom and dad loves each, they love each other and they love the Lord and they hugged me and they kissed me and it, I was emotionally and I was spiritually and I was physically and I was relationally healthy and we just say praise the Lord. But, but here's why I bring this up because what we're going to talk about today is, listen, being in the church, what it means to be a Christian is that God is my father and the church is my family. And, and listen, some of you do not understand Christianity. It's never made sense to you because you've never had the right paradigm to think about family because you grew up and it's not your fault, but you grew up in a terrible family or a tragic family or maybe a borderline tolerable family. And you don't understand this big idea that God is my father and the church is my family. And so Paul wants us to get this. This is a huge heart of Paul, and I want you to get this. In a time where we cannot gather as a church, I want you to understand how important it is that the church is family. So pick up with me in Galatians chapter 3, in verse 25. We're picking up with the Apostle Paul, and here's what he says. Uh, chapter 3, verse 25 says this, but now... Paul's making a transition, and he's going to talk about how a person becomes a, a Christian, how they become part of God's family. Here's what he says. But now that faith, and what is faith? Faith is the eyesight of your soul. Faith is a sixth sense. Faith is the ability to see the invisible world. Faith is what Paul says in Ephesians 3, I believe it is. It is the, uh, it's the eyes of your heart. And Paul says this, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. That was last chapter. That was the law. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Here's the first thing he says. God gives you a new family by faith. See, some of you, you, you didn't get to, well, all of you didn't get to choose what family you're born into, right? But, but everybody is born into a biological family, but Christians are born again into a spiritual family, right? You have one family by birth. You're like, maybe it was, wasn't a great family. Uh, you get a, another family by new birth, 
And what happens is when you're a Christian, when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you get a bunch of brothers and you get a bunch of sisters and you get this whole family mentality. The number one way the Bible talks about um, the church is as a family. Now, how do you become a Christian? How do you become part of God's family? By faith. In other words, um, what connects you to God is faith. Uh, not your feelings, right? Because some of you, especially in this quarantine, it's been like up and down and up and down. And, uh, you know, God loves you. God doesn't love you. God's in control. God's not in control. Well, why is that? Because you're controlled by your feelings, not your faith, right? Our feelings, they're real, okay? Feelings are real. Uh, But feelings must submit to facts and to faith, to what God's word has said. Now, also, listen, um, what connects you to God is not your religious affiliation. Some of you think you're okay because your parents, you know, went to church or your dad's a pastor or your grandfather was a pastor or you're in a certain denomination, right? Um, what connects you to Christ is not your knowledge of the Bible. Some of you feel so good about yourself because you know a lot of Bible verses. That's not enough. It's not about getting through the word. It's about the word getting through you. It's not about marking up your Bible. It's about being marked by your Bible and changed and transformed so you know how to have a relationship with God. So he says, faith connects us to Christ. And then look what he says in verse 27. He says this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ. And that means, baptized literally means immersed. He's what he's saying is when you become a Christian, your life is immersed in Christ, right? So that happens spiritually. And that's why, by the way, why do you get immersed in water? You get immersed or, or dunked, we might say, into water to say, I, my whole life is about Christ, and so now I want, my whole, I want to immerse myself in water for that to be a picture of how my whole life's about Christ. And he's cleansed me, and he's changed me, and he's renewed me. Um, so he says this, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Let me just say this. Some of you, you're going to get out of this quarantine, and you are going to get baptized, Because you're going to realize, that's it. (laughs) My faith in Christ is real. I need to be a part of a church family. I need to get my life together. Uh, I I need to repent of my sins. I need to trust in Christ. I need to take off the old man or the old woman. I need to put on the new person, which is what he says. He says, look, as many of you are baptized, you put on Christ. Here's what he's talking about. He's talking about clothing, right? Many of you are defined by your clothes, right? You only shop at certain places. You only go to certain retail stores. You only wear certain brands, right? Uh, why do people do that? People wear clothing, and this is, this, is, this is a very old idea, that you wear clothing, most people do, historically, as a status symbol. I want you to know there were entire colors, like purple, that were very difficult to get that only wealthy people could wear. And here's what he's saying, that the most visible thing that people need to know and see about you is Christ. That it is what you need to put on visibly. Now, why the language of clothing? Because well, clothing's a human, uh, a human universal, right? Every culture, every place that you would ever go across the whole globe, that, you know, what does the clothing look like? What's it made of? Well, that's different. But that uh, clothing in and of itself is a human universal, right? Uh, and we're the only creatures that wear clothing, right? Animals don't wear clothing. Now, some of you make your animals wear clothing, okay? And that's a whole other. We're praying for you. Your dog's wearing clothing right now as, you know, as he or she watches this with you. Um, but, but why do we wear clothing? Well, the, the reason we wear clothing is, um, really, and the most fundamental reason is, is to hide our nakedness, to hide our shame, to hide our blemishes, to hide our vulnerabilities. The reason Adam and Eve didn't need to wear clothing is because they were clothed in the love and the acceptance of God. It, but ever since Adam and Eve, the first thing that happens after sin is we need clothes. And what he's saying is you need to be clothed in Christ, and that communicates something. In the same way that, I don't know, you go to Chick-fil-A, and everyone who works at Chick-fil-A is dressed in a certain uniform, right? That clothing communicates something. That's what we, we should, we should um, be so 
uh, consumed by who Christ is and what he's done by us, that it's the most important thing about us and the thing that we want others to know most about us and be most visible. So that's the first thing. The second thing is God gives you a new identity in Christ. God gives you a new identity. Here's what he says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now that sounds strange because later Paul will write one thing. To the, Paul will actually say, I was sent to the Greeks and you know, Peter was sent to the Jews. So there are differences. But in this sense, he's going to talk about salvation. He's going to say there's no difference. Look, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. Or there is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus and you are in Christ And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, he's going to talk about Jesus a lot. Listen, Paul talks about Jesus a lot. I try to, to the best of my ability, talk about Jesus a lot. Because I want you to know this, Christianity is all about Jesus. And the most important and most fundamental thing about a Christian is that they're in Christ. Christians um, in the Bible are only actually called Christian five times. But 216 times we are told that we are in Christ. And here's what I want you to know. That you have a physical location and you have a spiritual location. And everybody's freaking out because they cannot control right now their physical location. You're like, well, I'm shelter in place or I'm stay in my home, right? And I can't travel or we're in a global pandemic or are we in a recession, right? Everybody's asking these questions. Well, here's the thing. Your physical location changes. Your circumstantial reality changes. I'm in the uh, pandemic or I'm in a recession. All of that changes. What never changes, what's final and forever, what's eternal and not temporal is your spiritual location. So no matter what you're going through, if um, if you are trusting in Christ, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. You are forgiven. You are secure. Your eternal destiny is safe. That's the great hope of being in Christ. He says you're in Christ, but then he talks about three places we look at our identities, and there's way more than this. But Paul kind of gives the big three, right? He says, uh, first of all, he says, um, he's gonna say there's no male and there's no female. Uh, What does he mean there? He's not saying that there's no genders, right? The Bible's very clear. There are only two genders. There's man, there's woman. There's male, there's female. Uh, That's that's been since uh, Adam and Eve. And what he's saying is they have a great equality, right? Men and women are equal in value, significance, dignity, and worth. And what he's saying is that when he's talking about men and women, or he's talking about slave and free, or he's talking about uh, Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile, uh, what he's saying is those identities, your, your gender, your race, your rank, uh, they are secondary. They, this is the good news. They don't work against you. So you don't have a disadvantage. You're like, well, I don't make a lot of money. That doesn't matter. Well, I make a lot of money. Well, that's not, doesn't, doesn't help you, <laughs> you know? It doesn't matter. I'm Asian. I'm white. I'm black. None of that works. uh, I'm Latino. None of that works for you. None of that works against you. And this is good because the human heart desires to feel superior, right? I mean, everybody wants to feel superior. We want to feel superior to other people in how we look, right? I'm better looking than you. Well, okay, you're better looking. Well, I'm in better shape. Okay, well, you're in better shape. Well, I'm, I'm smarter. Okay, well, I'll never be as smart as you, so I'll have to learn how to be funny, right? Um, we, we, it even gets goofy, right? As, as I remember when I, when I bought my first house years ago, I, I started to really care about what my lawn looked like compared to my neighbors. It, it's all about competing, comparing, trying to conquer. And, and what this is so important. What he's saying is, listen, there are still differences and distinctions, right? 
Men and women are still different. Paul writes one way to men and one way to women in Ephesians 5. He addresses mothers and fathers. He addresses husbands and wives. He addresses, in Titus 2, he addresses the older women differently than he addresses some of the younger women. So he even talks about different ages and stages. He's not saying that when you come to Christ, every distinction and difference is obliterated. What he's saying is they become secondary. They're no longer, the, they're important, but they're no longer the most important thing about you. Now, here's the truth. When it comes to gender, you will be either male or female forever, right? Jesus Christ in his resurrected body continued to be male. You will be a man or you will be a woman forever. And that's a good thing about you. Second, there's race or there's ethnicity or there's culture, whatever you want to call it. And that's also going to be a part of you forever, Right? And that, 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 that's to honor every ethnicity. That's to honor every culture. That's to honor every race. When the Apostle John, at the end of time, he like, you know, puts on his binoculars and he looks out and he sees everybody worshiping. Uh, at, at, this is in Revelation 5. He says, I saw people from every tribe, tongue, na- uh, nation, and language. He's saying they were worshiping. Why? Because God's way too glorious to be worshiped in one language uh, or by one race or by one skin color um, or by one culture. And then finally, the socioeconomic differences, right? And th- these can tear people apart, right? I, I'm, I'm better than you because I drive a certain car or I live in a certain neighborhood or I can send my kids to a certain school or I'm able to be, take these certain vacations or, or whatever it is. And it's like, listen, um, the, in the early church, there was vast socioeconomic differences in people, but it was secondary to their primary identity in Christ. And one of the powerful pictures of the church to a lost and a dying and confused culture is a church that is unified but not uniform. There's not uniformity, but there's unity in amidst all of the diversity. And that only happens when we, we don't cling to our secondary identities, but we cling to our primary identity in Christ. So that's the, the second thing he says. And then there's a third thing he says, which is this. And it's found in verse um, one of chapter four says this, God gives you the position and pleasure of being sons. God gives you the position and the pleasure of being sons. Now this is, this is a transition. We're moving from chapter three to chapter four and we're gonna be talking about the, do- you can handle big words, the doctrine of sonship or the doctrine of adoption and he's gonna talk about this. He's gonna say, how did you go from being a slave to a son or from an orphan to a child or from isolation to adoption in God's family? And this is important. You're going to go, well, why does he say sons and not sons and daughters? Good question. The, the reason he does that is because back then in that culture, uh, daughters could not inherit uh, property. They could not inherit all the things that the family had. To say that we're all sons brings us uh, unified together to say that basically we inherit, every Christian inherits all that God has for us. And, and this is now, ladies, uh, you need to get used to, at times, being called sons as a, as a big kind of junk drawer uh, in the scriptures. And then men, uh, it may be uncomfortable for some of you, uh, you're going to need to get used to being called the bride of Christ. Because there's a whole other section of scripture that calls us the bride of Christ. And he's using these beautiful images and metaphors so that we can get the richest meaning out of them. And so here he's going to talk about this. And I want you to see this in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says this, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, 
We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, let me just share a couple things here. Uh, he's going to talk about slavery. You have to understand sla- the slavery of the first century was very different than slavery of, uh, in our nation's history, right? In our nation's history, it's this horrific uh, reality of, of a race being kidnapped and completely enslaved. What, what first century slavery was in that Roman culture was every race owned slaves and every race Every type of race was a slave. And it had nothing to do with race or ethnicity. It had to do a lot of times with no bankruptcy laws. It had to do a lot with um, no social security net. And so he's using this idea of slavery, which you know, very likely there were many slaves in the church of Galatia that he's writing to. Uh, so, you know, we don't know all the details of, of the culture and, and, and how many of the members of that church were slaves, but he's writing this reality. Now, what he's talking about is the idea that before somebody is a son of God, they are enslaved. Right? And, and now I've told you this before, but this is true. The biblical, uh, the cultural world today for slavery would be addiction, right? And do we not live in a society that is completely enslaved and completely addicted, right? And some of you, you feel this right now. You feel the enslavement, especially in a time where you, maybe you have more free time, maybe you're up later, maybe you have less accountability, maybe you have more autonomy. Uh, may, so maybe you're drinking more than you should be. Maybe you're looking at things you shouldn't be. Maybe you're reaching out to relationships that you shouldn't have. I remember I talked to one guy and I said, what's the hardest part of this quarantine? And he said, the hardest part of this quarantine is that I have absolutely no sports to watch for several months. And it's just like, you know, there's a whole other part of us that we can be addicted to entertainment. We can be addicted to sports. We can be addicted to just following people on social media and seeing how their life compares to our life. And these are all of the different types of slavery. And so he's going to make this transition here. And he's going to talk about how we went from being slaves to being sons. And here's what he says, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he talks about the fullness of time. And that's an incredible statement. Because the Bible, it's interesting how the Bible will say things and be kind of very specific but vague at the same time. Like fullness of time. It's like another time, another place that says at just the right time. Christ died for us. So I want to talk about this for just a moment because it's a very interesting kind of theological idea is that the Bible uses many words for time, but two of them, one is chronos, which you get the word, we get the word chronology from, right? You can see that. So time is linear. It's unfolding across history. Uh, Things move uh, chronologically. And then the second idea is kairos. And kairos means a moment or a turning point or a special inbreaking of God into time, space, and history, which happens And what happens is as chronology happens, often there is a kairos moment. And and, and I don't know this for sure, okay? But but my question, as I'm reading this this week, going, are we in a kairos moment right now? I mean, if ever there was a kairos moment, it might be during a global pandemic when for the first time, the entire world, the entire globe, every continent is thinking about the exact same things, right? And, and, And what's interesting is when you read the fullness of time, it says... There were three, if you kind of study the culture, there were several things going on that made it the right time. It was the right time spiritually. In that time, people were getting sick and tired of the polytheism and the false worship of that day, right? And I think we're living in a time where people are getting tired and seeing the bankruptcy of the idols of our society. Uh, Also, it said it it was the time where God's people came back from exile. The entire Old Testament was written, and God's people saw the foolishness of running away from God 
And they felt recalled toward God. Secondly, they said it was a great time culturally uh, because Alexander the Great had come and the Greek language had spread and from the British Isles to India, Greek was spoken. One scholar said that Greek is the greatest language ever created to communicate human thought in a clear and comprehensive way. And that's the, that's the language God decided to write down his written word, the New Testament, for us to have. He wanted us to have the clearest, most comprehensive, most detailed account of who he is in his word. The third thing is, it was the right time politically. There was what was called the Pax Romana, which was an incredible time of peace in Rome. And there was the Roman road system, which created roads that went 250,000 miles of roads. And when you had the peace of Rome and the roads of Rome, then the gospel, along with any other message, was able to travel easily, peacefully, and quickly. So all of this comes together, and then look what it says in verse 4. It says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son... And I love that because, you know, there's, that verse is so pregnant with kind of theology and, and, and who Christ is. It says there, God sent forth his son. So before Jesus was born as a baby, he was sent as a son. That Jesus had pre-existed, that it's the sentness of the son, the eternal nature of Christ, even before he was born. Then it says this, he was born of a woman. Now, why, doesn't it say, why does it say born of a woman? Wasn't everybody born of a woman? Yes, but uh, everybody was born of a woman and a man. Only Jesus was born fully, solely of a woman. And it speaks to his full humanity. And then it says born under the law. In other words, he was going to live a life like you and I. This is the humanness of Christ, right? This is what makes Jesus Christ, he's told in the book of Hebrews, a great high priest because he's acquainted with our weaknesses. He was tired. He was tempted. He was as human as you and I are except without sin. And see, we have to hold to both the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ. The humanity of Christ is what makes him so relatable and understandable. And he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to to live. And he knows what it's like to, to be a human. But then his divinity is what makes him a God who can save and a God who can change and a God who can transform our, our lives and our hearts and our minds. And so it says that he was sent. And then look at verse five, it says this to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So this verse tells us the two needs that you have and that I have. The first need that you have is that you need to be redeemed. Here's what that means. Somebody needs to pay the price to set you free, right? And, and you, the, the, the whole idea is that the natural condition of every person is as a slave. They are enslaved to themselves. They are enslaved to sin, and Christ comes and he sets us free. But then the, the beautiful thing is the second thing it says there is that he doesn't only, he doesn't only set us free. It says that he, that's redemption. Um, he also brings us into his family. That's adoption. It's like, it's more and more good news. It's like, I release you and I reward you. I set you free and I welcome you to be part of my family. It would be like this. If you were on death row and you got released from death row and also you got rewarded uh, with the Medal of Honor. It's both and. That's why the Bible talks about grace and mercy, right? Mercy is, uh, I don't get the bad I deserve. Grace is, I get the good I don't deserve. And we see both of this. This is why J.I. Packer, who's a famous theologian, I believe he's um, you know, one, of the, one of the great theologians of the, of the 20th century, he said um, that adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. It's not just that God has created you. It's not just that God has 
forgiven you. It's not just that God has redeemed you. It's that God has gone the extra mile and he has welcomed you into his family. And what we see here and what this verse tells us and what this whole passage tells us is how costly our adoption was. Like I've I've had friends, we've had people in our church who've adopted um, both domestically and internationally. And, and, you know, if you know anything about adoption, I don't know all the details, but adoption is incredibly costly, incredibly expensive. You know, it can be something like $40,000 or $50,000 to adopt somebody. Well, the, the most expensive adoption that's ever taken place is when God decided to send his only son to the cross to secure our adoption and to welcome us into his family. And so he tells us this, and then look at verse 6. And because you are sons, that's the reality, God has sent the Spirit. So it's interesting. There's a dual sending, right? He sends his son into history to go to the cross, but then he sends his Spirit into our hearts. It says this, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. So he wants, us to, he, he wants to talk not just about the objective reality, Christ died for you, that happened outside of you in time and history, but the subjective reality of the Holy Spirit coming into your heart. And this is the, the sign and the seal. In other places, the Bible talks about it as the, as the deposit and the down payment, that you have a relationship with God, that you're headed to heaven, that your salvation is secure, is that you have the Holy Spirit. And the sign in your life at least according to this verse, there are other signs. According to this verse, the sign that you have the Holy Spirit is that you have an intimate, personal, passionate, prayerful relationship with God. That's the sign of it, right? Like before somebody's a Christian, they may pray, but it's formulaic. It's mechanical. It's not, it's not per- in fact, the, the, language of, the language here of Abba, Father, is the language of dad or daddy, which makes religious people, very uncomfortable to think about God that way. But the whole idea here is that if you're truly a believer, you cry out to God as your dad. That's the sign. I mean, I think about my son. I've got two sons, but my son, Elon, he's three years old and, you know, he's always yelling mom or dad or, you know, and, and, you know, he'll be upstairs in the house and he'll be yelling, dad, 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 you know, and Sometimes I'm trying to hide from him. No, I'm just kidding. But, but, but you know, I, I'm somewhere else in the house or I'm downstairs and I'll eventually kind of come to the staircase and I'll yell up, what's up? Yes, I'm here. And he'll say, say something like, okay, just want to know where you were. You know? And it's, it's this whole idea that and sometimes he has questions and sometimes he wants me to come up there and sometimes he needs help with something. But the whole idea is he just knows if he calls my name, I'm going to answer because he's my son. And it's this whole idea. I mean, I, you know, Tim Keller uh, said at one point, he said, who would ever have the audacity to wake up a king in the middle of the night and ask for a glass of water. He said the only person who would ever have the guts to do that would be his son. And that's, that's the access that we have to God because we are sons, not slaves. Which leads to the last, the last point. God gives you freedom by becoming your father. God gives you freedom by becoming your father. I want you to look at verse eight. Formerly, when you did not know God. And what does he mean you didn't know God? He doesn't mean you didn't know about God. Some of you, you know about God, but you do not know God in a personal, real, Abba Father, vibrant way. That's what he's talking about. You know, almost everybody on earth at one point or another learns about God. 
But it's something different to know God as my Father, to know Christ as my Savior. Here's what he says. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved, right? What he's saying is it's not the Christian that's enslaved, even though society sometimes says, oh, Christians, it's, you know, uh, it's that, that's an oppressive religion. Those people are, are old-fashioned. Those people can't do what they want. They're enslaved. Actually, the Bible says the non-Christian is enslaved. They're not enslaved to something they hate. They're enslaved to something that they love. And he says this, you were enslaved by those that by nature are not gods. That's, that's a reference to idolatry. And then he says this, um, verse nine, but now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, and that, that's, the, that's the mutually relational nature of Christianity. I know God and he knows me in a very personal way. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles? In other words, he's saying, once you're a son, don't go back to trying to be a slave. Once you realize God's your father, don't start relating to him like God's your master. He's saying you've got to continue this son-father relationship. It is the primary way that we relate to God. It is the primary way that Jesus talked to God. He talked to him as father. And then he says this, um, Worthless and elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to become once more. The big idea here is that God is your father. You are his child. That's your secure status. Don't move anywhere else. You know, and, and, here, and, and, and this would have been a big deal in that culture, and it's a big deal in our culture, because uh, here's what would have been true in Roman culture and is also true in our culture today, that the quality of your dad, um, the quality of a child's life is connected to the quality of that child's father. And that was particularly true in that culture where, where children didn't have rights, they didn't have privileges, um, they, they didn't have any benefits, they weren't seen as, as helpful at all to society. And so a, a dad in many ways could, could treat his son or daughter in any way he wanted to. And so the quality of that child's life was deeply connected to the mom and dad, but especially to the dad of that father. And see, what happens is a lot of you, because you've had a terrible relationship with your dad, and that's, that's an interesting thing. That's one thing I've seen a lot in ministry, how many uh, men and women uh, have had terrible relationships with their dad that has affected their life, well, for the rest of their life. And there's the grace of God in all this, but, but the, way that, the way that this changes and transforms is you can't look to your dad on earth and say, that's what God's like. You know, you have to look to God. You have to look to how Jesus relates to God the Father and say, that's what it's like to have a relationship with God. That's what it's like to know God as Father. Because what we tend to do is we tend to look at our uh, relationship with our earthly father and treat and, and say, that's what God's like. I'll give you an example. You, you'll see a lot of people today that, uh, I'll give you one example. Uh, for atheism, I, I read at one point that almost every famous atheist had a terrible relationship with their dad. And you go, well, why would that be the case? It's like, well, what's atheism say? I don't have a dad. He doesn't exist. I've never heard of him. What's agnosticism? Agnosticism is, uh, I might have a dad. Mom talked about him some, but I've never seen him, right? What's deism? Deism is very popular today. Deism is, I, ha I have a dad. Uh, I don't know him really well. He lives far away, but he pays for everything, right? And then there's vague spirituality. Vague spirituality is like, that's what a lot of people believe today about God, like a, a view of God that basically said, he's a very permissive parent. He's kind of like an older brother. All he wants me to do is be healthy and happy. Um, and so when you have these, these wrong views of your earthly father, they can affect your view of your heavenly father. And it needs to be transformed and changed by looking to the scriptures. And this is, this is where he goes. And look, he even warns in verse 10 of a warning. He says this, verse 10, you observe days, 
and months and seasons and years? You go, well, what's wrong with that? Well, what that is in verse 10 is that's a reference to the, um, to the Jewish calendar. And here's what he's saying, and this is so important. He's saying that when you lose that it's about a relationship with God, all you have left are rituals and routines and rules. Right? I mean, the the person who doesn't have a relationship with God, they just look at the church calendar and go, yeah, I'll go on Christmas. Yeah, I'll go on Easter. Yeah, I'll go on Mother's Day. Yeah, I'll do communion. Yeah, I'll do confirmation. Yeah, I'll go to the wedding. Yeah, I'll go to the funeral. I I have an events-based relationship with God. I don't have a real relationship with God. And let me just tell you, there's a very famous man named John Wesley. He was, he's honestly one of the most famous preachers that's lived. And he, when he was a young man, he was a minister. He was a pastor. He was a pastor's kid. He, he was helping the poor and helping the prisoner and giving to the church. But he would later look back on that time in his life and say, I wasn't a Christian even while I was a pastor. He said, even while I was generous, even while I was fasting and doing all the church disciplines, he ended up later realizing that God was his father, Christ was his great older brother who died on the cross for him to bring him home to God. And this is what John Wesley said later, uh, later in his life, looking back uh, when he was a pastor but not a Christian. He says this, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. Christianity is a religion of sons, not of slaves. And See, God sending his son into the world for our redemption, our adoption, it tells us what our biggest problem is, right? If our biggest problem was that we needed to be, you know, entertained, then God would have sent an entertainer, right? If your biggest problem was financial, God would have sent an economist. You know, if your greatest problem was uh, lack of technology, you know, God would have sent, you know, a scientist. But our greatest problem is that we need to be forgiven of our sins and we need to be reconciled to God. And so what does God send? God sends a redeemer, and the reason to, he sends the Redeemer is not just so he could be set free, but so he could be part of God's family. And, and I just want to give you an opportunity right now, wherever you are, to, be, to become a part of God's family. That, that's what's amazing. God has already paid all of the cost. He, you know, he, he, it was a very expensive, very costly, very long rescue procedure, right? I remember talking to some friends of mine, and they were, I, we've had, I've had two people that I know pretty well in the last year or two that have done international adoption. And I remember both of them the night before, you know, they went, they got on the plane with their spouses to go fly over the world to go get, go get their child. You know, I said to both of them, I said, this is a powerful picture of the gospel. This is a, you are actually getting on that plane and we'll see you in a few weeks and and you're scared and you've got lots of questions and, and you're about to meet your child and you are really on a rescue mission. And that's what God did. Jesus Christ came on a rescue mission and he came so that we could be adopted. So here's the good news everything has been paid for for you to become a son and a daughter of God. There's not one thing that you need to do. There's not one thing that you need to add. All you need to do is welcome it into your life. All you need to do is say, I somehow believe that what Jesus Christ did 2,000 years ago on the cross, somehow that counts for me. And when I transfer trust from myself to Christ, I recognize him as my great older brother, I recognize God as my father, and then I I recognize that I'm part of God's family. For those of you who are Christians, and I know that's many of you, you're Christians, but really you've been living more, especially in the last few weeks, you've been living much more like a slave than a son. Let me just say, today's the day. Today's the day to embrace your identity, that God is not your master, 
in the most fundamental sense, he's your father. God does not want to use you. God wants to bless you. You don't need to seek God's approval. You have God's approval. And in that, there is so much freedom. I, I think I said this last week, but my kids flourish most when they know how secure they are in my love for them. And when they know my love for them, my care for them, my concern for them, and my approval of them, they end up living in that freedom, and we have the strongest, healthiest relationship. That's what God wants for you. Let's pray, and then we're going to sing together. Let's pray. Um, Lord, I pray right now that if there's any person in here who would just say, who's listening to my voice or watching this online, who says, I really want to become a son or daughter of God. And I've not had a great dad. I've not had the greatest family. I've been misunderstanding all of this. But I realize that Christ has paid the very costly and very expensive cost for me to come become adopted into this family. And I just want to welcome that. I believe right now. I want to just cry out to God. Um, we pray, Lord, that you would make that person born again. We pray that you would send the Spirit into their heart and they would cry out, Abba, Father. For the rest of us, I pray that we would be committed, every Christian in here who can hear my voice would be committed to not living as a slave, but fundamentally and primarily living as a son and as a daughter. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.